there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Well, our friends at Loblaws are in the news again. They've released their second quarter profits. We're looking at $508 million the shareholders can divvy up amongst themselves. Just to be clear, that is just in the second quarter alone. This is like a 30, over a 30% increase from what they earned last year. And I don't think I need to remind anybody of what groceries cost right now. Santiago, didn't you just go grocery shopping? Yep. Basic ingredients today cost me $90 and I still have no idea what happened. What uh, walked into the grocery store to just like try and spend as little money as possible. And it seems that no matter how hard one tries, you cannot spend affordable amount of money at the grocery store. And, and, and I'm not even talking about one of the more expensive groceries. I'm, I'm talking about no frills in Parkdale, where it's supposed to be one of the cheaper grocery stores. You mean you're not boycotting Loblaws? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I could boycott Loblaws if I wanted to. Not like, well, maybe like Loblaws as in Loblaws, the grocery store, but not like I still got to pick up my ADHD medication and my anxiety medication at shoppers. And the no frills is like so close to where I like the closest grocery store would, would be far away. And then it's like, OK, well, it's still not great. So as I was doing my notes here and knowing the levels of food insecurity that exist, I'm going through the articles to find the figures, you know, just to see how much money they made. The numbers aren't really important, but the way almost all those articles were framed was just awful. They gave no space at all to folk talking about groceries or food security advocates they spent most of that space allowing Loblaws to defend these profits to, again, say, like, they're not all from food. We have a really diverse portfolio. Manufacturers are still making us pay a lot of money for what we need. And it, it, it completely lost focus on the fact that this company is making record profits off of starving Canadians. Right. Food bank usage is going through the roof. They cannot keep up with demand at all. Meanwhile, they're rolling in the Benjamins at the grocery store. This is maddening, maddening. Yeah, to say the least. And it's it's such an intersectional issue, too, because this plays into all the aspects of people's life. You know, that anxiety affects everything but also not having access to nutritious food affects the way you think 
it affects your ability to have energy throughout the day. I mean, this is really a case of capitalism shooting itself in the foot once again for, in the name of short-term profits. But it's so maddeningly, like, in a fit, not even in it, just absurd. It's just so completely absurd. And it doesn't end here either because we've seen inflation slowing down, but it has had no effect on the grocery stores and people already can't afford. So it's like, where where is the natural stopping point for them where they say, enough, we've price gouged enough? Well, the answer is nowhere because we know that growth is the constant necessity. Otherwise, if, if they're not growing in profits, their shareholders won't be happy and they'll make changes and price gouges even more and they'll buy up everyone else and it's already all bought up by three people. So it's, this is just another depressing part of living in late stage capitalism, I guess. But you got your grocery rebate. Right. Don't worry. The federal liberals have come in and saved the day. Of course, the NDP will take credit for it. Um, and we're we'll be fine. That will cover not even my family's week of groceries. All of this kind of coming together at the same time, we're getting reports that food bank uses is just going to go up even higher. And the focus that was on Loblaws in the House of Commons it's still appalling to me that we don't go, you know, we still have terms like greedflation to describe this and not, as you say, capitalism shooting itself in the foot. Although I'm not sure it is shooting itself in the foot. As I dug it into the story and was reading about Loblaws and alerted by our guest from this week, Bruno, of the York Southwest Intendant Union, when he kind of had that ominous line about, Loblaws getting into the housing game. I think at first I thought he was joking, but I dug into it. And yeah, of course, choice properties there. One of the largest, you know, they're called REITs. I should <laughs> insert here what that acronym is. It was like real estate investment trusts or something like that. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So they're the largest one of these things in Canada, which means they own a lot of properties. And they even say on their website that they benefit from their relationship with Loblaws. It's, it's essentially one in the same. But it's the way they frame how their portfolio is based that really got me mad because of how we talk about essential goods being controlled by profiteers like unscrupulous, insatiable profiteers. They boast about most of their portfolio being necessity-based businesses, meaning things you need to survive. They house them all, you know. All, all those things pay leases to choice properties. And they're also getting into rental properties, you look at their website, they've got plans for Toronto and a few other urban centers. All of it looks very gentrifying. I can't imagine any of it's going to be affordable. This is a bad development for me, you know, to start off getting really mad about the groceries and then spiraling down to realize just how many essential goods are controlled in this way and becoming out of reach. And I think one thing that's like really um, 
absurd about this situation is that it, this this to, I feel like is a very familiar thing for a lot of people from third world countries, like this kind of relationship to a single business or a single individual. Uh, what immediately comes to mind is Mexico and someone like Carlos Slim, who, you know, people say you can't uh, go a day in Mexico without contributing to his fortune somehow. Usually people are aware of it, right? But in Canada, we're so completely disconnected from how much of an oligarchy we live in. I mean, people are living in complete ignorance about this. This is this is an advanced level of oligarchy. This is this is not. <laughs> this takes a while to get to this point, and there are many warning signs before you get to this point, which shows that this has been an intentional decision that has been facilitated over decades. The thing is, I don't I don't really know where you go from there when it doesn't seem to matter how much bad press. Uh, Galen Weston or Loblaws gets. Well, I think that's the thing because we go after the personality and not the system. And and then we also design policies that are going to be aimed at you know, at limiting CEO salaries, which you know is great. We could just likely get rid of CEOs. To be honest, I've seen business structures that's ridiculous, but we don't, right? <laughs> As you were describing that oligarchy, and I thought of it, too, as I was seeing in the many ways Loblaws has diversified its profits, made me think of the movie Wally. You know, that's where, you know, it, the branding is everywhere. There's no doubt about it. By and large, it owns everything. The banks, the grocery stores. I mean... Was that not a cautionary tale for us? I mean, the planet ended up a whole bunch of garbage with only rich folks being able to orbit in space until it's inhabitable again. Yeah, I feel like um, that's not even... Like, I also immediately think of the Lorax as another example. Um, and I feel like, you know, all these... My generation, I guess we we were kids... Uh, well, when these movies were come up, and I, I do feel like it had an influence, but it seems that there's just the disconnect is connecting those stories to the real life examples, because there's we become so good at blaming the wrong people for this, and the thing is, as you mentioned, it's that continuation of attempting to blame individuals as opposed to realizing that this is baked into the very system itself. This is how capitalism needs to function because there is a limited amount of money that you can gouge from non-essential goods and services because eventually people will just stop spending money on them because they're not essential. And capitalism demands that constant growth, which means inevitably... The, those corporations that are most successful at the moment and are no longer making money from those non-essential goods and services will immediately start to attempt to privatize and profit as much as they can off of the things we need. And that, that's just what Loblaws is doing here. It's nothing special. There's nothing different about them. This is the way that capitalism functions. This is inevitably how it will always play out. Yeah, no, we spend a lot of time here shitting on Loblaws, but you made the point earlier before we started recording that, you know, they're not alone in this. 
in the food game and in the real estate game, I think, you know, even the existence of REITs, the treatment of land and shelter as investments and the rise of these institutions is so problematic, right? At a time where really we need to be decommodifying housing, framing it as a human right. And meanwhile, there are the wealthiest amongst us that are just gathering up properties, scooping them up, building them, turning their profits into more profits. And all of it means an increased cost of living for us. Nothing of this is done with any kind of advancement in mind, which is what people always go on about capitalism being the engine for innovation and making our lives easier. <laughs> when the fuck is that happening? And, and they also, they, they like to talk about choice, right? That capitalism creates choice because of competition. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? There's no competition whatsoever. Like, all of, you, you go look at, so we're looking at grocery stores, but you start looking at food brands, right? And there's like eight companies that are like every single brand that you would recognize when you go to a grocery store. Eight companies own like everything. Like I, I think of like Nestle and Kellogg and stuff, I guess some of the big ones, right? But they own everything, right? And it's that illusion of competition, that illusion of choice that is baked into the very foundation of every single thing in capitalism. It's, uh, it's that duopoly. It's that, you know, as long as we're debating between who likes what you like better, Coke or Pepsi, you don't realize that you're, the, you're actually being played for a fool into making you think that you have a choice because you ha you get to choose between Coke and Pepsi. Absolutely. And like, don't get me wrong, those folks compete against each other for our dollar, I, you know, in a really playful way in the marketing sphere. But do not think for a second that they don't unite behind closed doors and set bread prices or conspire with one another to pressure, you know, folks like Dream Unlimited not to cave to a rent strike, right? We heard that the landlord lobbyists were kind of united on that front. So lots of ruling class solidarity is what they have. They know that they know who they are. They know that if they're competing at each, against each other and ripping each other apart, that they all stand to lose from it. Absolutely. They know they're in a class war. Too many of us do not. One thing that President's Choice, blah, blahs, hopefully, I say this, but I could be wrong, don't have game in is public transit. Did you like my segue? <laughs> <laughs> that works. Okay. I don't even know if it's true, though. They might. <laughs> well, I thought Bruno was joking, and so now I don't know. I'm not even going to look it up because I have enough things to be upset about. But, you know, I... Grew up in Scarborough for most of my life and uh, seeing the debacle that's been surrounding the Scarborough RT. Can you help us get caught up to speed, Santiago? Well, <laughs> um, essentially what happened was the Scarborough, I'm still not sure if it's LRT or RT, but uh, you said it's RT, so I'm going to go with that. Um, it one of the trains derailed a few days ago and five people were injured. Now, 
uh, this line was already supposed to be shut down in in the coming months. Um, but it reminded me once again of the absurd divestment in public transit that Scarborough has experienced. I mean, we're talking about a borough of 600,000 people, which is bigger than most cities in North America. And they have one of the most underserved public transit networks that I have ever seen anywhere. And it reminds me of how earlier this year, when we were talking about the wait time increases on the TTC, um, the vast majority of the routes that we're seeing above five-minute wait time increases were bus routes in Scarborough. Um, the way they treat Scarborough when it comes to public transit is, frankly, it's just malicious. I mean, this is Scarborough is a predominantly visibly visible minority community, working class community. It is not a place of wealth which is why it seems to be that it doesn't matter that it's 600,000 people. They will never get the service they deserve. I just want to give po folks, perhaps outside of Toronto, a little bit of perspective. Scarborough takes up the entire east end of the city of Toronto. It's massive. It goes north to south, the entire uh, length of the city, I suppose. And the Scarborough RT was light rail above ground, and it was the only way to really get to the subway system. Either that or you're, you're essentially taking an east-west west bus all the way to Young Street, which would take hours, does take hours. I've had to do that to Finch Station many times. So this is the only fast way to get to the subways, which essentially run right down the middle of the city in the south end for the most part. That's where most folks are going. And now all of these people, you're talking about seven over 17,000 people a day, weekday, are going to be shuttled on buses. And even though this probably spells the very end of the RT that was already scheduled, that was always the only plan for at least seven plus years is to bus all of those people on shuttle buses, you know, albeit Olivia has promised to build a dedicated bus lane, that's 17, over 17,000 people alone on, on this busway that the money is not even earmarked for at this point. So in the meantime, those folks are pooched. And a reminder of how much worse it is with, once again, all the wait time increases on all the other bus routes. That already exist, right? Yeah. The ones that already exist are the ones that the city decided were the ones that would most make sense to increase their wait times, even though, once again, we knew that the light rail was scheduled to be decommissioned in the coming months. There was no real plan to deal with this. And this goes beyond, I, I think that this is an issue that goes beyond car-centric design, in my opinion, because it's not like Scarborough is designed in a way that also makes driving the most logical thing either. For me, that like, this is... This is There's simpler. plenty of parking in Scarborough, I'll tell you yeah. that. 
You don't have to this, pay for it either. Yeah. No, this is simply this is simply the um I don't even want to say ignore ignoring of a underserved community. This is like the active active malice against an underserved community. This is beyond indifference. And there's no real there's no real urgency for anybody it seems to talk about this. This this wasn't a big issue during the recent uh mayoral election either of the recent mayoral elections no so i go back to see you know what is olivia's position on this we're going to talk about it what can people look forward to and and yeah she's promised 60 million dollars to build this busway other than that you couldn't find hardly anything on transit at all even there was an article uh by the rabble which normally does really great stuff and the headline labeled Olivia as a champion for transit and housing. But the word transit didn't appear again in their article. And in a city that has so many people that are relying on transit, it was astonishing that it wasn't front and center. But I think that speaks to what you just said. It's not just the Scarborough debacle, but it's transit underfunding in general that is spitting on poor folks. Like, ideally, it's built for all people, but it's not. I want to mention when it comes to article, I attempted to write an article about this, actually, uh, about the cut, cuts, the, the wait time increases specifically affecting Scarborough. And my professor seemed utterly in, disinterested in the idea of me writing that story. Is he from Lee's it, side? <laughs> well, he, he worked for the Toronto Sun as a crime reporter. So, you know, uh, I'm not sure where he's from. But um, anyways, point being that like, yeah, I remember, okay, I'm not writing this. Somebody will write this. And I remember waiting to see that article be written because it was on my radar. And I'm just a journalism student. So if it's on my radar, somebody who is uh, actually working in the industry should definitely have noticed. And nobody was writing articles about this. And it was absolutely infuriating. And, and like I said, this is, a, this is a massive community. Bigger than, like, you, if you were to start naming major, I, I remember I saw a list earlier this morning about major cities in north america that scarborough is bigger than and it is it's shocking i don't have the list but there is many recognizable cities that have major sports teams that are like big cities that it's not the burbs that people think it is no no it's it's a massive community and the fact that nobody even cares to talk about this and once again like and, and and bringing it back to you know economy and stuff like that there's no logic in isolating the people of Scarborough from the rest of the GTA, from the core of Toronto. There's, there's no logic in this. It, it doesn't make... Well, let's be fair. They've already been priced out of the core. Most city attractions, anything to do, most families can't afford to do them. And they will travel. I've had to living in Scarborough, take two-hour bus rides to school and back, to work and back. You just have to do it. You don't have a choice. And so it's just the suffering they don't care about. You know, you still have to get where you got to go. And the impacts of that time, I mean, how many hours a week does that become of time that is that is wasted on a commute? I mean, this is this is not logical. Scarborough is... A borough of Toronto that has no access to Toronto, no easy access to Toronto. And 
you know, like you, you, you start talking to, to people who, because I, I, I live in, in downtown and a lot of people here, they just never been out to Scarborough. They don't even, they've never been to Scarborough in their life. They don't even know what Scarborough looks like, you know. People have been to, to the other boroughs, you know, everyone knows North York, everyone's been to East York, everyone's been at some point had to go to Etobicoke for something or another. But people have never been to Scarborough. And that's strange. I mean, the food is incredible. It can't be all that bad. I grew up there. But I think we're being unfair to Chloe Brown. Because I think if there's anybody during the election that was focused on Scarborough and the needs of the communities usually ignored, Chloe Brown consistently brought up solutions for for that area. So I'm sure if she was listening, she'd be like, I did. I did. No one would listen. Uh, So... And TTC Riders, we had them on a few months ago. They have been advocating for solutions in Scarborough for some time now. So so obviously the long-term goals that TTC Riders, an advocacy, an advocacy group for public transit, have become a lot more urgent with the derailment and the possible end of the Scarborough RT. But they've got some great ideas that I think you will like if you haven't taken a look already. So... You know, they've got eight years at least, because let's be honest, if Metrolinks is involved, we're probably talking about 15 years until that subway is built or whatever they end up building. And they want to decommission it and turn that into the busway with a green public space, you know, for pedestrians and cyclists, uh, free transfers in the meantime for folks going between Go Transit or the other service providers so that people can get around in Scarborough in more ways than having to rely on that busway. The Eglinton LRT, the Eglinton East LRT is another big issue with the Toronto Transit. It's just sitting there not being used, which again is stopping people from the east end of the city getting into the core. And it's just sitting there (laughs) driving my dad crazy in this neighborhood. He still can't get in and out. Um, they also want to preserve that corridor long term for that same kind of public space that we were talking about. So another shout out to TTC Riders for having so many solutions. I hope they go far with the current mayor. I mean, they're great ideas, but still, but still, it still means no matter what for the next minimum eight years, a whole lot of people in Scarborough will only have a bus to get them into the core of the city. Like that is unacceptable that if you read through the story of this fucking Scarborough expansion, it's such a soap opera of political debates gone wrong and indecision and flip-flops. I'm not going to take the space to go into the exact history of it. Folks can look it up for themselves, but it's just an example of political inaction. And, you know, even the counselors in Scarborough did such a poor job of advocating for the folks there. They were just like mad they couldn't have hard rail instead of light rail and didn't want to be treated as second class citizens. It's like such a horrible perspective to come at it from. And and it's it also just to be clear, like this is not the norm across the world in, in industrialized nations. I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a transit system in Toronto that is truly, truly behind every single major city across the world that is a even a lot of major cities in non-industrialized countries are more 
uh, developed than Toronto's. And I can't help but think of places in, of high density cities in Asia that have incredibly uh, developed public transit that somehow managed to to move millions more people than what we have in Toronto. And Toronto, once again, is one of the, it's either third or fourth, I forget. I think it's third, no, it's the fourth, fourth largest city in North America. Fourth largest city in North America. We're not talking about a a city, and and it's a major financial hub. We're not talking about a city that doesn't have access to the kind of uh, population slash funding that would generally be allocated to a city of this caliber to be able to develop something. I mean, for fuck's sake, go look at like the just the subway map of any fucking European city and then look at Toronto's and it's embarrassing. Even compare it to Montreal and it's embarrassing. Uh, this is <laughs> this is truly what should be what, what we are to a certain extent an international laughing stock. For this kind of thing. But we don't feel that. We think that this is the norm. Because we have no idea what's going on anywhere else. And and, and we act like it's so difficult. I'm just laughing. Because you stole that line like right out of my mouth. Like I was thinking. There's nothing more embarrassing than comparing Toronto's subway map. When you go abroad. Um, do it for fun while you're listening. Like, um, In that comparison though. It made me think of something I wanted to share Back to what Herman said in our TTC Riders episode, when he stressed the need for transit to be for everyone. Now, right now, it's mostly geared towards poor folks who absolutely need it for the most part. And that's why it's largely underfunded, because nobody advocates for the poor. Right. We, we know that. But in the same way, Herman says this in the episode, mostly because we're talking about climate change and transit as a solution higher ridership would have on lowering our emissions. But I think he was also getting at something else that I didn't really get until now, not fully, until I started chirping about private schools. And the reason I don't think private schools should exist is because everyone's kids should be in the public school system. Yes, there's problems with the public school system and how it's structured and It needs work and it needs a lot more funding. However, the existence of charter schools and private schools and religious schools allows rich folks to not give a shit. Literally, our ministers of education in Toronto, in Ontario, have never even gone to public school. They don't know what it needs. They don't care. And so it's it's lost. The same would exist if we designed our cities to public transit and not to cars. Because you would have to take public transit, right? Making people have to take public transit would incentivize politicians and rich folks alike to have good, well-funded transit, clean transit, safe transit, fast transit. But they don't. It's just for the poor folks right now, right? And not even. Because every time you see uh, route cancellations, they're, again, in the most underserviced areas. It's like a cost-benefit analysis rather than a how else are those people going to get where they need to go analysis and and realizing it's a public service and not something that is always going to be cost-effective. Because, you know, John Tory adds $53 million to the transit budget 
And you're like, oh, yay, like that is a significant increase. And then you find out, well, that also went to hiring 50 more security constables. And he promises to make or he promised to make most of it up with fare increases. So on the backs of the people who can't afford to drive, they're going to pay for more more constables on the line. And a reminder that we already pay within the top ah, five or ten fares. Uh, I think it's top five for monthly fares, top ten for single rider fares of any transit system anywhere in the world. Like we're paying already way, way, way more. And and, and you look at the countries that are, are paying more than us and they all, all have incredibly elaborate, complex transit systems that can get you anywhere you want to go in the city. We don't. So we're paying all of these incredibly high fares for nothing. We get nothing in return. We get a broken system that barely um, meets the needs of many Torontonians and doesn't meet the needs of so many more Torontonians. And not even to mention all the people who are not even Torontonians, but who work in Toronto and how difficult it is just to get into the city. And how expensive, like, <laughs> start talking about how expensive Go Transit is, right? Like, you want to take the Go Train into the city. I know people who are paying $20 a day um, for those round trips in and out of the city from the suburbs. where And then they still have to drive their car to get to the station because their suburbs don't have adequate transit systems to take them to the Go tra- Train station. And if they do, well, guess what? You're paying... Uh, an additional, oftentimes, I see it, $8, right? Because you're paying $4, $4 for uh, that um, ticket in a, in a different area. And like, well, all, same thing, like ask anybody who lives in Mississauga who works in Toronto. I know so many people who live in Mississauga and who work in Toronto who are paying incredibly high prices every single day. And on top of that, losing so much of their time. And of course, no, you know, every now and then I hear people say, you know, things about how employers should be compensating for that time. And and I strongly agree. And of course, they they don't. In fairness, that should be done in their taxes, right? They're undertaxed. Yeah. Businesses. That's the point. It's just like, we're getting a really shitty deal here, yet we think we live in in this, adv- this advanced city. It's like, no, please, please, I beg people to go learn what the rest of the world looks like. Like, so many of these issues only exist out of, out of ignorance because we don't know what the rest of the world looks like. One of the things that has plagued Canadian cities as well is really poor leadership and to give folks an an understanding of how Canadian politics work in that regard. Municipalities have very limited ways of raising funds. So it's no wonder they raise fares every time they have to increase funding for the transit system. They only really have property taxes and building permits, very limited revenue resources. It's the provinces and the federal government that take in most of our taxes and should be putting it back into transit but not to worry, here's my sarcasm tone for those who might not be able to recognize it. Justin Trudeau has announced billions in permanent public transit funding. So, for example, knowing the busway may cost $60 million. That's just Scarborough's busway to, to solve one little problem for eight years. 
60 million. So what do you think federal government funding for permanent transit, sorry, so what do you think the yearly allotment from the federal government should be for all of Canada when we're talk when they say permanent public transit funding? Santiago, do you want to give it a guess? Like what should it be? Honestly, don't have a number, but I, I I'm of the belief that it should be whatever is is necessary. Like whatever it takes. Because be, because any investment in public transit will pay for itself in its benefits to society so it's it's not the type of thing where we should be even concerning ourselves with how much it costs that money will make itself back in in not being lost in other ways so it's like if it costs you you could give me a hundred billion well i'm only gonna give you three you get three from the feds and that's got to be split across Canada three billion dollars a year and they were very excited about this announcement so so clearly the federal government cannot help Toronto with its transit funding woes Uh, they won't help Olivia with her housing issue either I mean that's a story for another day but the feds love to pretend they're doing a lot of help and they really do nothing at all but that's okay. They're never one to be outdone by the provincial government. Doug Ford standing there like he wasn't on council during all of this and saying, oh, well, the province could have fixed this years ago. Council could have fixed this years ago. We have no idea if he's going to fix this. My guess is no. Yeah, I'd, I'd strongly believe no. And, and it's funny because it's like, if you did fix this, then you'd have a bunch of people supporting you and... You'd guarantee power for your party or whatever, you know, like, but apparently like they're, they're that secure in their control that they don't have to worry about 600,000 people. That doesn't matter. For folks that want a way to push back in all of this, we do highly recommend TTC riders. You'll remember they were on a few episodes ago, but they have a petition specifically aimed at the issues in Scarborough, but they do so much more. So again, we will link you to them in our show notes. Yeah. So in the end, it's going to come down to what Olivia Chow's willing to do on this portfolio. The jury's still out on that. So that tells us that the work of TTC writers and other advocates still need to be holding people's feet to the fire because this There is no solution for Scarborough right now, but this is just a microcosm of the transit woes in Toronto and in Canada in general. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content, and if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.